Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another amazing episode. So I have two of my very good friends as uh, panelists today on a very special episode known as Navigating the Roadmap to Acquisition. I had Ben Leonard from Ecom Brokers, and then I have Chris Shipperling, who is a uh, managing partner with Global Wired Advisors. Uh, they've both been in the space for a quite some time, uh, leading the roadmap to a lot of acquisition for e-commerce sellers, whether that's on Amazon, off Amazon, uh, with Amazon brands, Shopify brands, or even uh, SaaS brands. So we're going to be talking about all things acquisition on this episode. And uh, yeah, I'll let you guys introduce yourself. Ben, I'll let you go first. Chris, you can follow up. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Uh, yeah, my name is Ben Leonard. Um, got into e-commerce uh, back in 2016, started my own brand. It was a fitness brand. Turned out I was pretty good at it, so I quit my job. My day job was uh, as an ecologist. I have a science background. Um, I scaled it up. Uh, we were doing about six million bucks when I sold it in late 2019, uh, right before the explosion in uh, mergers and acquisitions in e-commerce. And I sold it through a broker, and that broker uh, left quite a lot to be desired. And at the end of that process, my accountant, Allison, and I um, put our heads together and said, well, we could do a better job of this. And so we created Ecom Brokers. Allison's got like 20 years mergers and acquisitions experience and she tidied up the mess of the broker that I use. And meanwhile, I understand what it's like to be an e-commerce business owner. I'm still building brands now. And so combining those two skill sets together meant that we could offer a bit more for sellers and for buyers, actually. And being in the UK put us in an interesting spot with so much transatlantic work going on. And, uh, and so here I am. Perfect. Nice. Yeah, Chris Schiffling, I'm a managing partner of Global Wired Advisors based here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, started my career a long time ago in consumer products. I worked for uh, companies ranging between 22 million all the way up to half a billion as a sales and marketing executive. So have a lot of uh, CPG experience. I uh, met up with my three partners here. We're all based in Charlotte. Uh, they came from the Bulge Bracket Institutional Investment Banking World as managing directors. And uh, I pivoted my own career into um, uh, all digital, thanks to a buyer that I met with once who used a lot of subjective data while I was meeting with her and saying things like, I feel like, I feel like this. And I said, I'm just going to talk to the consumer directly and forget trying to sell into the stores anymore. And so that's when I pivoted my career to all digital, meeting up with these guys. We saw a really large, uh, as they like to say in business ease, blue ocean uh, when it comes to uh, e-commerce growing at the clip it was growing before, before the pandemic, um, before all the aggregator funds uh, were raised, we were already seeing uh, e-commerce going at a very nice clip. And we said, hey, we're anticipating lots of M&A activity in this space. And so we started our investment bank about four years ago, back in 2018. Uh, ever since then, we built it up with a fairly large transactions team and we've got a research function, et cetera. And uh, yeah, we work with all types of digital consumer product uh, companies, um, ranging really between all Amazon-based uh, businesses um, uh, to, to D2C uh, and also omni-channel. So yeah, it's a little bit about us. Yeah, you guys uh, are two halves of the same coin on different sides of the Atlantic. And uh, I figured that this would be a perfect discussion. Um, just full disclaimer, I am not an expert in this field. That's why I have these two guys on here to be able to educate me and also you guys uh, when it comes to this, because the concept of acquisition has become quite popular over the last two years, right? Yeah. Um, back in 2019, aggregators were unheard of. Aggregators, investment bankers, brokerage firms were unheard of in the Amazon space. You essentially had the roadmap to build your business up to seven figures and beyond. But nobody knew what to do at that point in time, and very few people were actively selling their brands. So let's discuss the 
the explosion of growth in this space. What separates an aggregator from a brokerage firm and what separates uh, an aggregator from a process? And I'll let you guys uh, take a coin flip to see who goes first. Sure. Go ahead, Ben. You go ahead. Ben. Yeah, sure. So aggregators. Um, Thrasio, who everyone has, has heard of, and if you haven't heard of, you've been, you've been living in a cave. Thrasio came to exist in um, autumn 2018 and kind of led the way uh, we're, we're pretty much first in, in into this space, um, raised a ton of money. And, and I think their, their D series uh, a couple of months back raised something like a billion. And that was their D series, raised a ton of money to roll up e-commerce brands. And, and since then, probably around about 100 more or less copycats have done the same. Whereas you mentioned, uh, what is the difference of, of, of a process? Um, whereas aggregators would like to acquire your business from you directly or, or take your business off your hands from you directly. Um, a process is what we do in every other industry in every other walk of life where we prepare our business for sale, uh, have a, an exit strategy to maximize the value of the business, take it to market, market it to a pool of the right buyers, and then uh, get get the deal done such that it is structured in a way which is favorable to the seller and meets your goals and aspirations. Whereas aggregators want to acquire your business for as low a possible multiple. Um, you know, multiples at the moment in the e-commerce space are, are five, but usually, you know, that's about the average. Typically, if you're, if you're going through a process, you can expect, you know, five to be, to be all right. But oftentimes, if you're selling direct, you're going to end up with a multiple more in, in, the, in the lower lower range than that. And then aggregators are gonna, you know, when they when they want when they go public later on, sell on more like fifteen times. So they want to take your business from you for as little as they can. Whereas what you ought to be doing is going through a process. So, you know, that's really what the difference is. There is aggregators are buying your business; they'd like to buy it from you directly. And e-commerce brokerages are uh, are the guys that are taking you through the process to uh, sell your business the right way. That's right. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just echo quickly. I mean, if you look at any investor deck um, where you've had these aggregators going out and raising the funds and looking at those decks, you'll see it's very clear. It's, it's their business model to get a lower multiple because it's what they call, it's what they call multiple arbitrage. So they're trying to get the smallest multiple possible out of a proprietary relationship or a direct relationship because the minute that asset goes on the balance sheet, just to Ben's point, it immediately becomes a 15, 20X. And the Wall Street guys, they get that. And then they place a bunch of Wall Street guys, as, you know, the finance guys inside of the aggregators to go and accomplish that. And so, you know, when you have a direct relationship to Ben's point, you know, we call it alligator rolling. <laughs> the minute, you know, they woo you and they woo you with, with, oh yeah, we'll pay up. We'll give you great deal structures. And then the minute you start, the minute you go under LOI, the alligator roll begins. And we also call it, they're like boa constrictors, man. Like every day they just get tighter and tighter. And if you don't have an intermediary, you know, someone strong, someone who can really defend your financials, financials and play offense and quarterback the process, the boa just keeps just, it just keeps constricting to a point where you're almost losing oxygen. And then right before they want to sign the, the, the APA, which is the asset purchase agreement, which basically makes the thing theirs. They retrade you down, meaning they say, we're going to pay 10 million. No, 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 no. Actually, we want to pay 7 million now. And you're so out of oxygen. You're so beat down 
that you just either roll with it or now you're defeated and you walk away and you've got a really bad taste in your mouth. Now, Josh, you know this, all of us and your listeners now have friends because the aggregators have been around for 18 months. We all know people who have gone through something like this and it's becoming more and more common when you go direct. It's why you need to choose. It's why you need to choose someone like Ben and someone like, like us to, to defend and offend when it comes to this process. Mm. I, I, I have heard tales of this and uh, recently actually just got off a, a phone call with a friend that had a very similar situation dealing with an aggregator. Um, and this isn't to uh, essentially point out the failings of it. It's more of the educational process of it where they went through the process of reaching out with an aggregator. They didn't get what they, uh, what they felt that their brand was worth. Um, they reached out a couple months later and the process essentially fell apart. Um, do you see this as a common trend in this space or what's the safest way to actually navigate this when, um, when, try, when, when looking to uh, sell your brand? Because I'm seeing that what ends up happening with most aggregators is that it becomes a long drawn out process, but with the investment banking space or the brokerage firm space, that it's more of a smoother transition and it doesn't take nearly as long to get the results that you want, get better results. Um, so maybe that's just my naivete, but that's what I've come to experience dealing with uh, friends that have sold their brands, either via an aggregator or via an investment bank. Yeah. So, you know, in, in any walk of life, uh, there are there are better players and, and less good players. And, and the same is true of the aggregators. There's nothing wrong with selling your business to an e-commerce aggregator, provided you've taken it through the right process. And ideally, that process then will lead you towards the better aggregators. Apart from, apart from maximizing the value of your business and having, as Chris said, uh, someone there to defend and offend on your behalf. But yeah, some of the worst players are guilty of this, this uh, retrading and are guilty of, um, you know, you, you got to look at it. They're, they've got an investment committee. They've got several deals in front of them. They've got a certain amount of resources that they're going to allocate to doing these deals. And they don't particularly, you know, they're not forming a relationship with you at that point. They don't necessarily care that much. Whereas your broker does, your broker is working on your behalf to, or if a good broker in any case, towards your goals and what you want to achieve. And so coming back to what you said before about smoothing and speeding up the process, if they've done their job properly, then that, that will naturally happen because they all have been through your numbers and effectively audited all your financials. And they should have got you going on a head start through the due diligence process, such that everything is neat and tidy with a ribbon on top. So that when the aggregator comes to do their due diligence and the seller hands over the data, Everything is much more ship shape and there the, the aggregators due diligence job is uh, less of a headache. It's much easier for everyone. Plus That's right. when, when Bob in acquisitions is then pre presenting this to the investment committee, they're going to be much more suitably impressed by the state of your business, having it being through a process with a broker than the other options they have on the table, which perhaps might not have. Well, what I find ironic too, and I'll just add this point, um, you know, look to Ben's point, there are really, there's really good, ag there's really good funds and there's bad funds. I mean, you find this, mm -hmm. you find this, you find this everywhere. You find it in private equity, you find it with corporate strategics, you know, uh, corporate development teams, it's, it's all over the place. So there are really good folks out there. I mean, really what we're, what we're talking about are the folks that say things to you and is, if any sellers are listening, you don't need to go through a process that should be a massive red flag. 
you know, saying things like, you know, hey, just just work with us. We promise we'll make it worth your while. Oh, you don't want to work with a you don't want to work with a broker. You don't want to work with with these guys or an intermediary because, you know, they, they just they're, they're just going to they're not going to do any work or they're just they usually talk about the fee, which I don't call it a fee. I call it a return on investment is what I call it. Um, because that's not what, that's not, that's not what we do. We don't just out there trying to be transactional and collect checks. We're trying to find in, in, in capital markets, they call it the market clearing rate for any asset that you're trying to trade or sell. And the market clearing rate is the apex of what the market will pay for a particular asset. That's our job, man. That's all we're trying to do. We're trying to go out there. We're trying to find the top of the market. So I'd say, you know, there are good, there are really good funds, but anybody who's trying to sit there and say, don't go through a process, those are really the guys we're talking about. And unfortunately, there tends to be a little bit more of those guys than not, just because again, it's their business model. Private equity doesn't have this business model, man. They're not in the, they're not, they are in the business of arbitrage, but they're, but it's much different. They're way more strategic about the way that they're in the business of arbitrage. Like their whole thing is, if I see an asset and I really want this asset, it's high value to me. I'm going to be competitive to, to make sure I get the asset, but I'm so confident in the funding and the resources that I have that I'm going to pour into to make this a more valuable asset as it grows three, four, five years from now. Private mm -hmm. equity just thinks more strategically, whereas these funds, because of their mandate, their mandate is you need to get that multiple as low as possible in order to arbitrage for our full balance sheet. Yep. It's a totally different mindset. And that takes into yep. account the amount of management uh, that needs to go into building these brands. Because from my understanding, from what I've seen with a lot of aggregators in the space, and there are uh, a massive amount, is that they are great at raising capital and yes. they're great at the acquisition process. But when it comes to management, not so much. So they have to be able to have that wiggle room to be able to actually manage these brands in case one or two or five pieces of this portfolio end up bottoming out. So they have to have some kind of flexibility and that's where they end up offshooting that kind of work uh, to an agency in the space that can actually do that because 90% of their infrastructure is built on acquisition. Is that correct? Or am I, am I just shooting in the dark? 100% right. And, and just on, on your point, they're great at raising money. And they're, they're good at acquisitions. Uh, but many of them know diddly squat about e-commerce, which is why so many of them are now, are now failing. And we're going to see more and more consolidation in this space. Uh, recently, uh, Awesome just uh, acquired uh, Flywheel. So that, that's an example of what is going to continue to happen. But it, it raises another point that is because so many of them are so poor at the operational side, that brings us back to why you need somebody to defend you uh, to ensure that the deal is structured such that you are protected. You know, for instance, the earnout targets, if there's going to be an earnout, the earnout targets need to be realistic. There needs to be a decent ladder there such that if a target is missed, you fall into the next bucket and you're still going to get the next bucket of cash. There need to be provisions in the deal such that, for instance, if the new owner goes out of stock on certain SKUs for a certain period, I don't know, say seven in, in any 30-day period, that will be adjusted and it won't affect the um, the revenue or the EBITDA towards your uh, earnout target. There need to be provisions to ensure that you still get read-only access to where they're selling your stuff so you can flag issues before they become a problem. Because at, at half past four on a Friday afternoon, Bob in supply chain doesn't give a crap about your earnout, but you do. And so whether or not they're going to go out of stock on your product 
is is down to is down to to them you know and so that just brings us back to when you're not entirely confident about the operational capability of some of these guys you need to have the right people fighting your corner to make sure that the deal is right there was one thing that you mentioned and i want to bring this up to both of you and it's the concept of ebitda so in in my understanding aggregators work off of ebitda and sure. uh in brokerage investment firms, private equity, you guys are working off of ST. Would you mind breaking down the differences between that? What's the pros and what's the con? And also when it comes into the SaaS space, because SaaS is now becoming uh, very popular as uh, being aggregated, how they operate off of ARR, annual reoccurring revenue. Um, would you mind breaking all that down so that uh, the listeners understand if this is yeah. in one of these buckets, they easily can uh, uh, find the best solution for them? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's a financial instrument me metric to try and find what the true net income of the business is. It's or the true net profitability of the business. That's really what it is. So there's different measurements that are taken based on the, the type of business structure and the business model. So, for instance, when you're working with, you know, like uh, I was just talking to a friend of mine who runs a middle market investment bank here in town and he's selling a two hundred ninety million dollar pharmaceutical manufacturing plant. Right. We were talking about. I was just asking him, like, do you find, are there any ad backs just out of curiosity, like for a thing like that? And he's like, no, nah, man. And what's funny in that is those business owners will go, hey, you should adjust my salary out. And they're like, and he was, we were joking about it. And he's like, yeah, you are actually underpaying yourself for what fair market value is. So actually we need to raise your salary to adjust the EBITDA and the EBITDA just goes down. The net profit goes down. So in kind of the more complex world, EBITDA is pretty straightforward. When you're dealing with like what, 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 where we play, like lower middle market and Main Street, lower middle market tends to go off of like businesses that have EBITDAs, call it like two, three, four million plus. Uh, they tend to work on what's called an adjusted EBITDA. And, and the reason why it's an adjustment is because there are, there are certain activities and certain things in what's called the profit and loss statement that, that the market will accept as adjustments. So for instance, they may have bought in a new ERP system. Let's say they brought in NetSuite and that's a one-time expense. You can take that and adjust it to the EBITDA because everything is looked at in trailing 12 months. So you have what's called an adjusted EBITDA. Now, in more cases than not, like in the lower middle market, um, a guy that's running the business who founded the business, he may actually be taking a much more higher salary, not a fair, fair market value salary. So you, you adjust that salary down to meet the market. And that's also accepted by, by the funds as well. It's, 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 it's accepted by the capital markets. SDE is what's called seller discretionary earnings. And that's used more in cases where it's like Josh owns his own business and outsources most of what he does and doesn't really have a complex team. And so it's just literally seller discretionary. So you're going through the PL and you're going like, you know, Josh ate at uh, Outback every single day and wrote it off on the company. And so, you know, <laughs> and so we were able to add that back. And Josh went to all these conferences and we're able to add that back. And because it's not necessarily something that is, is germane or pertinent to run the business, right? It's just something that you exercised as your, you know, red-blooded American rat, you know, to run a lot of expenses through, through a business. And so, uh, so that's really, that's kind of, if you're to look at things from that perspective, you know, as you get up into more middle market enterprise, EBITDA is a bit more, it's very complex, but it's more straightforward. You can adjust the EBITDA 
and kind of more smaller, but still complex businesses. And then more of the, you know, owner founder run businesses are SDE. Like, um, yeah. What do you think, Ben? I mean, you've explained it perfectly. I think the only thing I would add, a couple of things I would add uh, for, for listeners who are, who are listening saying, okay, I get what SDE is, but what is this EBITDA word they keep talking about? Yeah, it, that's You don't right. really yeah. need to know this for the purposes of this. It stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. But really, it's like what Chris said. In, in our, where we're in the ballpark we're, we're dealing with, and for 99% of people listening to this, because we would be, if we are going to be working on EBITDA, it's an adjusted EBITDA. It's treated much more similarly to SDE. So really, to, you know, everybody's business is different, but to keep it simple, we're talking about uh, net income plus addbacks and adjustments. That's the number we apply the multiple to. And that's how we landed the value of your business. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you're in, and also too, that just made me think of this, like when you're selling to an aggregator in particular, you're selling to someone who's got a back office. They're not keeping anything. Yes. Like the, the, so you're going to, you're, you're going to basically try and roll up almost all the expenses at that point, because, you know, you're not, you don't need, you don't need the people that were involved in the business anymore. Yep. Like it's all rolling into uh, the, 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 the operating fund. Right. And so that's where to, to Ben's point, SDE is absolutely more or less the measurement there. And then when you like, for instance, private equity, they buy everything. Private equity doesn't do a roll-up strategy and they do a roll-up strategy, but they don't, they don't hire a full operating team to then run that business. Like mm -hmm. private equity buys your infrastructure. That's what makes you so attractive. So they'll buy your manufacturing plant and they buy, you know, they buy your warehouse and they buy, they're buying the company with all your people. They, they keep everything in place. Yeah. And so that's when adjusted EBITDA becomes more pertinent. It becomes a bit more important. Um, and just straight EBITDA, but yeah, at the end of the day, man, it's just all cute. It's all a cute way to say profit. How much does this business actually make? Yeah. That's it. That's, that's the very, that's the most real thing that I've heard, uh, so, in regards to this space, in regards to this discussion in a long time, because I've been curious to learn more about this and I understand it can get very confusing with the acronyms and the mathematical calculations. So, um, without having to go too heavily deep into that, uh, into the, the formulas of what your earnout would potentially be. Let's talk about the process because this is something that um, I think a lot of Amazon sellers or even e-commerce sellers would be extremely interested in. Like, what do you see as the minimum viable option um, for a seller to go to you and say, hey, I'm looking to actually get acquired. Um, I'm, I'm just either done managing my business or I'm looking to retire or I want to start up something else. What's the benchmark average sales that you would want to see on that account before you even consuming? The answer to that is going to be slightly, well, slightly, significantly different, I think, for, for Chris and I, because uh, uh, Global Wired, and Chris, you can correct me if I'm talking nonsense here, but Global Wired is typically dealing with, with larger businesses than we are, which is fine. You know, really, we want to, we want to see uh, SDE at uh, at least three, four, five hundred thousand and, and move on, move, moving on up from there. We look at smaller uh, SDE if it's interesting. Like for instance, we're selling one right now, which is only sort of a hundred grand. 
but it's got some very interesting IP around it. Mm. Uh, we've sold another one in the past, which was on the UK version of Shark Tank. It wasn't particularly big. The owners needed to move on for personal reasons, but it was going to be big and it had um, it had a relatively low SD, but it was an interesting one. But generally speaking, we want you want to see at least at least a, a half million for us and, and moving on up. We're doing we're, we're we're deal price for us is anything from sort of a half million into uh, the, the teens and 20 million. Um, I've talked to sellers almost every day who are doing pretty, pretty low numbers. And I have to deliver the bad news that their business is either worth peanuts or not sellable at all. And they say, but, but, but Thrasio, but aggregators. And I say, but nothing, um, you know, you're being, you're, you're hearing a lot of BS on podcasts and blogs, et cetera, um, which is deliberate because, um, uh, certain certain organizations want to pull the wool over your eyes essentially <laughs> yeah that's right yeah and that's where actually ben and i work in in really really good symbiosis with each other um you know global is 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 really working with uh, companies that are uh what we call stamping memorializing you know ebitda around 1.5 to 2 million plus um to up upwards of about 10 we've got a couple deals that we're that we're working on that are touching closer to the $15 million EBITDA. Um, you know, just it, 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 it get those, those deals just become more complex. They go on a longer deal cycle. Uh, you have to go and create a deal screen that reaches well beyond the aggregators. Um, and that's usually, usually what we do. Ben does the same thing, mm. but for, for almost all of our deals, in fact, we just put together our, our quote buyers list and everybody loves talking about buyers list in this, in this space, but it's, it's actual buyers, private equity funds, family offices, corporate strategics that have expressed interest in digital consumer products. They've expressed interest in e-commerce or Amazon centric brands. And what we discovered through that exercise is that aggregators on that list actually only represent close to 8% of where we're reaching and talking to. And when I say that, that's no BS. These are folks that have reached out. I mean, I just talked to a guy yesterday, um, they just raised a three and a half billion dollar fund. That's fund number seven, I think, for them. It's a very large asset management company. They bought a four hundred and fifty million dollar consumer product company in the office supply space, and that office supply space has now been given a mandate to acquire three P Amazon businesses to roll up into their one P hundred million dollar business, basically, and to really complement, you know, the the other assets and brands that they have. So. That's just a good for instance of where we reach. I mean, we had a pet deal that we took the market that was all Amazon and we were having conversations with Carlisle about that because they're very, very active in the pet space. Um, and so that's, that's typically where you have to go though when you take larger deals out to market because the aggregators for the most part, they can't swallow that much cash, period. So it just becomes, I mean, think about it. I mean, a $15 million EBITDA company in typical consumer product space commands average multiple between seven to 14. But if you take an Amazon business out, let's just say a seven multiple on 15 mil, I mean, you're talking well over a hundred million uh, or a hundred million plus, or maybe shy of a hundred million. I can't do math at the moment. Thanks to, <laughs> thanks to the afternoon. <laughs> I promise I know math, mom, but uh, you know, that's a lot of cash for them to swallow because the other thing folks don't realize is when you hear about all these large raises, that cash isn't just getting fed to acquisitions. It's getting fed to general administration expenses too. Yeah. It's be, I mean, Thras has 200 brands. That's a lot of inventory you got to purchase. That's a lot of brand managers and operating expenses that you still have to produce. 
in a year last year, by the way, that was really stinking difficult and squeeze the operating margins like crazy. So, you know, a lot of that cash that they're raising isn't necessarily just going towards acquisitions. That's the other thing people don't realize. So, yeah. And there is a lot that's happening in this space. Uh, primarily, there's one that I want to talk about, which is um, I believe it was the brand called Chewy on Amazon that sold for roughly half a billion dollars. Um, uh, it, uh, correct, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I'm probably uh, uh, a, pet, a, a pet food company. Yeah, it was a pet food company. It may yeah. have not been Chewy. Um, what was it? Uh, it was a, I think it was a supplement. Zesty Paws. Zesty Paws. <laughs> That's it, Zesty Paws. That was it. Yes. Yeah. And, they and they sold, had they sold absolute for, yeah. ridiculous evaluation. Now, when yeah. it comes to like, let's say a model like that, you're saying that obviously these aggregators cannot even be able to consume something like that. And Ben, you might, you might your company, um, your firm might see that as something that's outside of uh, what you guys would be able to handle. And Chris, that seems to be on the the heavier end of that. So where would where would these whales actively go? Because I have a feeling like there's there's tiers, obviously tiers um, to this to this uh, to this marketplace. Yeah, I mean Zesty Paw is anomalous to be honest. I mean, and that's a pet, a pet is just dude, pet's crazy. It is the hottest category that's out there. Period outside of baby products, and so you know the reason it, the reason it is is because there's so much consolidation. And what that means is that there's not a whole lot of businesses to purchase within pet, right? And lots of things gets consolidated quickly because pet is such a stinking good category. I mean, it just like they're treating pets like humans now. And so when you, you know, when you have a zesty pause, which I believe and I, I'm not going to search it right now, but I think it's a supplement brand. I think a pet supplement mm-hmm. brand. Um, I mean, dude, I don't remember. I mean, when you guys were growing up with your dog, like, did you feed him supplements? <laughs> yeah, I didn't have dogs. It's hundred percent. Did you brush I mean, his teeth? Did you I, give him CBD? <laughs> like, no, you didn't. You didn't do any of it, and so that's a that's a bit anomalous. Um, to be to be blunt, you know, I think um, you know for the most part, most most businesses on Amazon are not even close to that. Okay. Yeah, it's it's generally not not something that we have to, to consider too much because it, it, it just doesn't affect our space particularly much. And there are these anomalies, but, yeah. you know, coming back to what Chris said about the um, consolidation in this space, a successful pet brand um, w- will, will eventually be acquired because uh, the, 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 it, the reasons for them to be consolidated are just too good because, you know, um, we are all increasingly treating our pets like kids. Um, generally speaking, humans are pet lovers and more and more parts of the world, especially where we have more emerging middle class, more people want pets and want to uh, do the best by their pets. So it is just just uh, an, an incredible category. It so th- this, this opens up my mind to like another different question, right? So um, when are brands too big to acquire? When it becomes like too big of a risk for the firm to actually acquire them, where they would have to dump majority of their time, energy, efforts, and funds into bringing this brand on board, that the return of it wouldn't actually be beneficial for the overall company. And then it would cause essentially uh, another string of cannibalization in this space. Well, I, I don't think it's necessarily as straightforward as saying that they're too big to acquire in terms of the numbers, but actually it's more to do with the complexity of the business. 
And you know, so if we're going to talk about if we're talking about e-commerce and and the 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 e-commerce aggregators, um, you know, like like we mentioned earlier, they want to drop your brand into their existing system, and either they've got the teams to do it or they're working with agencies to to do it. And if your business is uh, too complex, uh, they're simply not going to do it. So there is a balance to be found because uh, on the one hand, we see more aggregators getting more sophisticated and um, actively trying to diversify onto different uh, sales channels, particularly uh, outside of the US, uh, in Europe and in Latin America, where we have different marketplaces, for instance, in, you know, in, in mainland Europe, we've got Allegro and Ball and Amazon and, and others. And on the one hand, some aggregators view this kind of diversity and added levels of complexity as attractive because you're widening the mode around the brand. But on the other hand, the more complexity you have, the more difficult it is to just drop that brand into their existing systems. So it isn't always about the numbers, but it's about the complexity of the business. And over time, the aggregator is going to be better set up to acquire more complex businesses. Yeah, that's right. This brings me to uh, a very interesting uh, query that I have is, since we've been talking a lot about aggregators in this space, why hasn't private equity done the same thing that aggregators have done, where they're uh, starting to buy up Amazon businesses uh, like the aggregators in the space? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, they're coming. It's, yep. it's, it's slowly but surely they're coming. I mean, there's a couple things. If you notice, when you take a look at the, the space, you see PE is investing in the vehicle, not the asset. So right now they're investing in Thrast, they're investing in Berlin Brands, they're investing in Heyday, they're investing in uh, Elevate, they're investing in you know the actual vehicle itself, <laughs> and they're kind of playing a little bit of a let's see what happens to the canary in the coal mine. Yeah, let's see how let's see what the canary looks like when it comes out of that coal mine. And I think what we're going to see is once someone goes public, and the return on that becomes 32, 35x in the public market, right? Then I think you're going to start to see private equity take the Amazon platform a whole lot, a whole lot more seriously. Now I can tell you we've been having conversations with PE in recent history where they're getting a bit more comfortable with the third-party platform, right? With the with the seller central, they've always been comfortable with vendor central because they're comfortable with that traditional wholesale model. Yes. Amazon sends me a PO; it's spread out over the over the course of the next two or three months. This makes me feel comfortable because this feels like Walmart. This feels like Target. This feels like Bed Bath & Beyond. The 3P is very uncomfortable because you're having to do a lot of the work to gain the, the sales. And it's also risky, right? The Bezos risk exists of getting suspended and suppressed. On vendor, you tend to have a little bit more of protection because you're really just providing the goods to Amazon and Amazon well, they're kind of, they've got the incentive to make sure none of that happens. And on 3P, it's still the stinking wild west. Right. So it's, it's kind of like the uh, on, online arbitrage, retail arbitrage model of, of uh, acquiring a company versus yeah. the uh, direct to consumer private label aspect where all the risk is on you and you have to focus on the health and the relationship of the listing versus the health and relationship of the seller account. Yeah, it's it, it basically it's like a tradition. They, they just are, they feel better with traditional, right? That's it, where they feel comfortable. Yeah, it's more comfortable, and it's generally oh, it has been easier for them. But they are they are waking up to the con to the fact that they do need to get a little more a little bit more nimble when it comes to this. You know, I I consult with a few 
um, funds who, uh, who who've owned brands for for decades and have operated them very traditionally. And you know, after a little bit of pushing and shoving, they eventually went into Vendor Central because, as Chris said, it felt comfortable. It's basically just an online version of what they were doing before. Right. But now they are actively saying to us, right, go and find us brands. Um, start, started by people in their spare rooms, which have, have are, are doing well and have got continued growth potential. And they are, um, they're typically doing a combination of, of in-house hiring and using agencies to then manage the, the three P uh, side of the coin. Um, yeah. But it's a, it's a huge learning curve for them because they need a bit like, similar to some of the aggregators, actually, they need to understand that what has been working in e-commerce, not just on Amazon, but but on you know on D2C websites and other marketplaces too, is um, you know small small organizations, one or two people organizations and small teams who are who are able to to act like a speedboat. They can very quickly change course, change itinerary, um, get up to speed quickly. Whereas you know these guys have been operating like lumbering cruise ships for decades, which are you know cruise ships are great. There's tons of entertainment on board. They take you to interesting places, but they take half a day to turn around. Yeah, and not so memorable. when I'm having, I'm having conversations with them. I'm saying, look, just take all your passengers off a cruise ship, and put them onto lots of speedboats. You can all still go to the beach party at the end of the day, but brand A can go shark fishing. Brand B can go snorkeling. Brand C can go you know, swim with dolphins and, and brand B can go to port and go shopping and you'll all go to the beach party at the end of the day. You just got to treat it more nimbly than you traditionally have. And that's a beautiful analogy that you just painted out there. And this is where I, I kind of want to explore. So I'm going to ask you guys to both look into your crystal balls and ponder for a few moments. And let's talk about uh, 2022, what our projected analysis is for this space. Because uh, again, there's a lot going on um, that's happened in the past relative to acquiring brands. Where do you guys see Amazon headed with brands in 2022? What does e-commerce look like from a growth perspective? Let's, let's talk about that because I, I feel like this is a, uh, a very unique discussion that we can have right now, uh, yeah. considering that rebates are no longer viable in the space, launching protocols yep. have actively changed. So the way that brands are actively being evaluated, it could be uh, that they've done rebates in the past primarily and that was their main successful uh main successful path to ranking and launching products um but now that could be seen as a stain on their reputation and it could potentially affect that brand as well as affecting the overall uh market value of that brand since that's no longer a uh a viable strategy you want to go first yeah i mean look i would say I would say from a from a from where is is Amazon going from a branding perspective? You know, they're they're forcing they're forcing kind of product guys to be more brand to be brand marketers, and you know they're they're creating exactly what you said, Josh, and not to not to repeat, but you know they're getting rid of a lot of the or trying to get rid of, rid of the the black hat tactics they always have, but now the gray, and really get people in 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 focus primarily on becoming a brand now. The reason why they're doing that is because they've been looking at their P&L for the past three years going, there's tremendous value in our advertising platform. And we need to make this thing bigger than Google and bigger than Facebook. And we need to, we need to attract real brands and real enterprise brands. And the only way we do that is we got to clean up our house, basically, right? And so they've been, they've been cleaning up the house. And in turn, it's actually caused guys who were doing the garlic press to go, uh, I've run out of I've run out of cheat codes for Contra, so I've actually got to do things like a traditional brand marketer 
and develop a real brand here. That's going to be, that's going to be very, very good for the overall space. Like very, very good for the overall space. No more infinite um, lives. No, man, you can't do it. You, you can't do the up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right anymore, man. It's gone. Those days are gone. So, you know, 2022 will be a really good year where I think there's going to be a strong rotation towards, you know, Amazon forcing more people to be become brand oriented. And, and that is actually going to be, that's going to drive multiple up. That's what everyone needs to understand. So to continue the computer game analogies, right? I like to think of this as a bit like Sonic the Hedgehog. So when Sonic jumps through the hoops, he gets more points, right? And this is another hoop in the road. And some, some sellers who, 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 who are not business owners because they, they haven't built a business, they've built themselves a job. They, they sell stuff on Amazon. And some of them will jump through the hoop and take on the challenge of, of becoming a brand. And that's great. I take my hat off to them. And some of them won't bother and they'll just turn away. And uh, I think this is excellent for the real business owners among, among us who want to uh, uh, build a brand and they consider that Amazon is just a sales channel and they have not got caught up in this mistake of saying, I have an Amazon business. Because I talk to people all the time and say, I want to sell my Amazon business. And I say, oh, I didn't know you were called Jeff. Because there's only one person with an Amazon business, right? And his name is Jeff. And he's got so, an awesome body now. Good grief, man. He, yeah, dude. Yeah, he does. Yeah, I, I, I want to know what juice he's on. Um, but like, to come back to your point, Amazon pushing brand is great for Amazon's P&L, but it's also great for everybody else, which is good. Um uh, coming back to kind of what's going to happen this year and in 2022, um, this isn't going away. Aggregators are continuing to raise capital. Every day we hear about uh, more capital being raised. There's now consolidation taking place among aggregators, aggregators buying aggregators. Um, I think that particularly also, you know, post COVID or, or almost post COVID, hopefully, um, Customers are getting back to spending money rather than all the retail therapy of spending money online on, on, on Amazon. We're getting back to spending money on services. Um, that will be interesting. And it will be interesting to see how uh, aggregators and investors uh, view this space as we, as, as we go forward. Um, but I don't think this is going away. And what's going to happen, actually? So, you know, none of the aggregators, and unless I've, I've missed something big here, none of the aggregators have actually gone public yet. Thrasio nearly did. They delayed it. As soon as one of them goes, we're going to see multiples go up, I think. Because when you're selling, when you go, go public, you know, CPG multiples are way, way higher you know, three, four, five, six times higher than multiples uh, when we're acquiring e-commerce, when the aggregators are acquiring e-commerce businesses, I think that's only going to attract more investment. So we're going to see multiples go up for sellers, I think. Yeah. So lots of interesting stuff happening and also further growth away from Amazon as more aggregators are forced to become more sophisticated. It's not just a roll up from FBA businesses anymore. Investors are demanding to see that these aggregators actually do have the operational capability. I spoke earlier about how you know a lot of them don't. Investors want to see that they do. 
Yeah. And as they gain that capability, they're going to be more interested in diversifying Shopify, WooCommerce, Walmart, whatever. So that's going to be interesting too. That's right. And, and to piggyback on that too, I mean, especially as you get into like a, as you, as you mentioned, Thras and a series D, you know, that, that cash was raised by Silverlake, which is a very much an institutional private equity fund. And when those guys get on, so when they get equity, they take typically that's, I think they have the largest position in Thras, maybe one of the largest, well, they get a seat at the board table. Yep. And so they're having a ton of influence at that point in terms of direction of the company and where things are headed. So exactly to Ben's point, the more of that institutional cash starts to really influence the way that the, the strategy is set in the boardroom, you're going to see more diversification for sure. You're also going to see a bifurcation of good and bad assets being purchased. I mean, again, use, u- utilizing the example, the Jungle Scout example of garlic crests, you know, the, the days of those guys wanting to sell their business of just like having this like, you know, swap meet of a seller central, um, but it's product and profit. Those, those days are gone. Those assets don't get sold anymore, you know, and, and really what gets sold now is you've got to see growth in the company. You have to see growth. You have to comp, which is, you know, comparing last year's to this year's numbers. You've got to see growth in the comps. You've got to have something that presents itself as, you know, vertical oriented, brand oriented. There's a real bifurcation that's occurring um, when it comes to the assets and the way that these, it's all funds. It happens to be that the aggregators are chasing Amazon, you know, the liquidity is chasing Amazon assets in the aggregator class right now, hot and heavy. Um, and they're kind of coming to some epiphanies and conclusions, but, you know, this is, this is how, this is how liquidity has purchased businesses for a long time. Aggregators are finally just getting, getting away from that junk model <laughs> and looking at it going, Hey, I, I can't afford to take on those businesses anymore. They stop selling at a certain point. Literally they stop selling units at a certain point. Yeah, and just- and there's two things that um, I don't mean to interrupt you, Ben. Um, no, you're good. When, when, when it comes to both things that you guys talked about, right? Real quick. Um, what Ben mentioned uh, specifically was something that I hear Tim Jordan and Carlos Alvarez talk about quite often is that you're an e-commerce seller with an Amazon plan, right? Um, Or you have a brick and mortar business with a Shopify plan and an Amazon plan and you're adapting to the space. And another thing that Chris, you touched upon is that um, looking at your books, 2020 and 2021 could easily be counted as bonus years because this is outside the standard deviation of what most purchase and buying behavior would be considered on a normal index for most average consumers, right? Um, Due to the uh, lovely experience that we've all been going through for the past two years, obviously 14 days left the curve. Um, But this was brought up to me by a good friend of mine, Dan Mazaros with Buy Boxer Service. Um, That's his agency. This is what he said. If you always look at your books, you should count those two years as bonus years because what ends up happening beforehand and what ends up happening afterwards is really the benchmark of how your business actively operated. So this brings me over to another point that I want to talk about is the branding process. What is a like what uh, uh, the branding process for Amazon sellers or people that sell on Amazon um, look like um, and the best way to actually enhance it for exit strategy, exit strategy and evaluation? Yeah. So one thing that I've noticed recently, I'm going to answer your question, but this just gives a bit of context, right? Sure. Is that because sellers are realizing, oh, I can't just I want to sell my business but it's really just a mishmash of stuff with some loose brand names applied to it. And they are now trying to 
they're they're floundering to to give their business some brand identity but it's almost too late or it is too late actually and many of them are, are, are they're just not very good at it. they take it by slapping a brand name on it and putting a logo in the, the, the corner of every image on amazon that they have a brand when you treat your business as a real business and you treat your brand as a real brand which is selling you know you you're producing a suite of products which solve related problems for a particular group of people, whether that's accessories for Harley Davidson fans or scuba divers, you need to treat it like a business which is going to build an almost cult-like following of fans. And Amazon is just a sales channel, as you said before, right? And your 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 brand is, you got to think about your brand as, as how your business makes people feel and your marketing is, as, is how you tell them about it. And so when it comes to Amazon, your marketing, a significant portion of that is your, your copy, your images, your enhanced brand content, your, your pay-per-click. Um, I'm going to steal an analogy that Chris used, sorry, Chris, uh, in a roundtable we were on a while ago, you know, the Pinocchio analogy. I want to be a real boy. You, you have to build a, a real brand. And so, you know, so if you're, it's not, if you're starting out, great, do this from the start. You know, I yes, would highly yes. recommend reading a book called uh, Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller and um, uh, a book called 12 Months to a Million Dollars by Ryan Daniel Moran. Those will help. And if you're some way off of exit, it's not too late to go back and um, retrospectively apply, apply some brand identity to your business and going forward, really make sure that you build your assets such that you communicate with your customers, whether it's on social media or on email or on chatbot or on your website and providing helpful, useful, engaging, free content to them on your website, right? You can't just sell a bunch of stuff on Amazon anymore. You can't have the dollar store model anymore when it comes to your no, business. Just, there, there are and, sellers and, out there that, that do have that and they have like amazing results where they just sell a mismatch, a conglomeration of products. Um, but it seems like the going trend, and again, this is something I've talked about on multiple episodes, uh, of this podcast is that having a cohesive narrative brand structure, raving fans, um, and honestly staying within terms of service of Amazon um, uh, makes it so that you have a much nicer, much more consolidated uh, package at the end of the day. So that if, if, if a, an investment firm or a brokerage firm or an aggregator were to actually consume this, they would see this as something valuable. And this also gives you much more leverage with them because again, there is the story-driven uh, aspect of your business that makes it so, so palatable. And Chris, I want to hear your thoughts on this because you, you clearly yeah. see a lot. You guys have a massive book of business. You guys see everything in the space. So um, you know what these indicators are uh, when it comes to proper evaluation for these uh, for these brands that are focused on brand. Yeah, aspect. yeah everything Ben said was God, spot on, man. And I would just, I would add one more component to it, which is product development. I mean, tip, typically, you know, coming out of, coming out of large CPG, that's, that's where we, that's where we focused our efforts. We lived in, we lived, we lived and we died by our, our new product development and our product development team and by innovation. And so I think that's a, that's a pretty, pretty large gaping hole in my opinion here in the, in this space is the ability to develop product. And develop product to, to Ben's point that solves a problem or in Steve Jobs point, uh, I, he hated market like focus groups. And he said, I, basically, I'm going to build it and they'll come to it. I'm going to build the innovation and everyone's going to use it. 
And so, but having any, any one of those mentalities tends to be a bit lacking, which is fine. It was just, it's an evolution of, of the current environment and really where, where, where everything in life goes as a consumer products company. Um, I would encourage any seller to really, if they want to become a brand, focus in on what, what is it that really differenti- differentiates you as a product. And then from there, you're really presenting in some ways what your brand promise represents. And then of course, the cohesiveness, right, is all the brand identity and just packaging it up to where every single touch point that a consumer has with your brand, it's all very much consistent. That's what all, to Ben's point, it's exactly what a brand is. A brand is nothing more than what the consumer perceives you to be. That's really what a brand is, right? And so you've got to enhance that perception to Ben's point through marketing, but you got to make sure that you're doing something very unique to make the consumer also want to have a conversation about you and tell, tell people in baby products, we used to call this word of mom and word of mom was so stinking powerful because when she would get that stroller and it would work so well and it, you know, it, 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 it made her walk on the sidewalk with her baby. It was fashionable. It made her look good because it was an extension of herself. The fashion was an extension of herself. They would, she would yip yap all over the place. Right. And so, but, but, but that was because someone decided to create something to give someone to talk, like a reason to talk about it. Right. Mm. Um, so anyways, but I would just, I would just harp on the product development piece a little bit as well. That's, that tends to be a a little bit, what I've noticed coming from, coming from CPG. And I know Ben, you, you, you a hundred percent get this in the brands that you've built. Um, you know, it's, it's tends to be a little bit of a missing conversation I've noticed. Yeah. You gotta be, um, uh, where possible developing products, which uh, are at least as good as what, what else is available and hopefully have a unique aspect to them. And if you can get some IP around them, then, then that, that, that even, even better. Right. Um, you know, I'm building a brand now and I've, I've been, I've spent months and months working with a, a top, top product designer to produce a, a unique product and it's costing a heck of a lot of money, but then the, the, the moat around that um, becomes wider and the attractiveness of that to an acquirer uh, becomes higher because you're building something unique and it's not just more me too stuff on Amazon. Yeah, and uh, there, there's a lot of that going around in the space um, where it's just a pages and pages and catalog and catalog of just the same product uh, from the same manufacturer, just different color variation, different size variation, different logo, uh, nothing really too fanciful, nothing that's going to make you go ooh and ah but essentially it's just taking up spots on real estate. So I'll, I'll wrap it up with this final question and this will get rolled out to both of you and then we'll just, uh, we'll, we'll have like a closing, quick closing discussion. Why sell? Why, uh, what if you don't want to sell? When to sell, right? These are all very important questions that a lot of people would probably want to know right now at this point in time. Like what's the benefit of this to them at the end of the day? Because they may find their brand fit into this perfect bucket that we've been talking about for the past uh, 45 minutes to an hour. Um, What's the benefit to them that's actually going to make them like get up and, and get out of their seat and be like, okay, this is something that I need to do yesterday. Okay. Well, I'll go first. Sure. Um, for most people who are in the ballpark in, in which we're talking about in e-commerce, I think why sell your e-commerce business is probably the wrong question. I think uh, and the reason it's the wrong question is I think it's 
you have to sell your e-commerce business eventually. There needs to be an end game. You need to sit back and ask yourself, what will the industry be like? What will my life be like? What will e-commerce and all the platforms I'm selling on be like in three years, five years, 10 years, 15 years? And depending on what the answer to that is, it's just going to be when you're going to sell it. But you are going to want to sell it because there has to be an end game to this. The, the way to make uh, certainly a generational wealth in e-commerce is, is, is really to exit your business, in my opinion, which is why the question is, is why make your e-commerce business sellable, I think. And so that's really why I think um, everyone needs to understand, even if it's not in their short to medium term plans, they need to understand that they need to build their business such that it is sellable when the time comes for them to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would, I would say, look, you know, when you first off, I mean, I think both of us here, and I don't think I know both of us here, we don't pitch to folks. You got a lot of used car salesmen in this space, man. They're just trying to exploit a lot of cash right now. And I think it's very transactional and it's, it's, it's not strategic. And, Mm. you know, when you call, when you call somebody like, like my, like Ben and myself, you're going to get a strategic discussion and we're going to tell you when the right time is to sell based on our purview, right. Based on what we know, based on the context, et cetera. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll touch on the, if you're ready, right. If you've built something that has, that is sellable, why do it? Um, first off, and I think we all, we're all salesmen on this. Josh, you say you're not a salesman. You're one of the best salesmen I've ever met. So um, I, if you're trying to convince somebody to do anything, you're already losing. So, you know, if there's a convincing that needs to occur, like just like just stop the press. But if you're at a place where you're really saying, okay, this might be good for me, why, but what are the benefits? Well, it's a, it's a life-changing event. This liquidity event will change potentially your life your, your kids' lives, it's generational wealth. It's, it's a life-changing event. And that doesn't really get discussed a lot. It doesn't really get discussed very often that this truly is a life-changing event for a lot of people. So, I mean, that's, that's probably benefit number one. Benefit number two is that you get to sit back and say, I accomplished something. I grew something. I grew it to a specific point. And I can also have the humility to admit that I need someone to grow it much further than this. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's about being humble about it. And also the the fact that you're not just taking care of yourself and taking care of your children and your children's children. And it it, it seems the more at that yeah. point when, why, why you want to actually do this process is is more of the emotional um, the emotional integrity to understand that at a certain point in time, as Ben mentioned, you have to see the end game and you have to let go. Um, and this is possibly the best process for you to actually get to that point. Um, you can't obviously run this forever. Who knows where e-commerce will be in five, 10 years. You could hold on to it and then everything, the bubble could burst, right? And at that point in time, your window to walk away has easily uh, been closed. And now you're just stuck with this, uh, this, this, this machine that is unable to actually produce. Um, so if you guys are trying to uh, elevate your life and elevate yourself into a, a new a new echelon of, uh, I guess you could say the nouveau riche, um, where it's the new, new middle class or the uh, upper class 
spectrum. This could be a potential viable option for you. I want to thank my, my guests here today, Ben Leonard with Econ Brokers. Uh, fantastic. Love it. Finally glad that we got yourself. We got you on. Uh, Chris with uh, Global Wired Advisors. Um, if you guys want to learn more about them, all you have to do is just head on over to our partner page. We have their links below in the bio. Um, we have a complete breakdown of who they are, what their business is about, and how you can get in contact with them to learn more what is the best process for you and your business. Um, because at the end of the day, we're all in this together. We want to make sure that you get the most out of this. Um, I want to make sure that you got the most out of this episode. Um, again, we could have spent hours talking in on this subject, but I know that they're both busy men, and so am I. Um, so we can't just eat a dead horse forever and ever constantly talk about this. <laughs> um, I could have easily talked about like the cannibalization in the space as well for like an additional 20 minutes. But um, without further ado, uh, I definitely want to thank you guys. So a uh, round of applause for both of you. Thank you, man. I appreciate having you. You guys have a fantastic day.